Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. I hope you're all having a wonderful uh, President's Day, and most of you probably have the day off. I'm working. Nancy came in from work to to do our show on her day off, so I want to thank her for doing that. We have our topic today is smoking, and our title is Up in Smoke, Be a Quitter. You know, smoking is probably the number one cause of chronic illness, in America, and it certainly is the number one cause of death for people who have mental illness and addiction, and I would even say for people who, who have either one of those alone or together. And there's been a lot of um, beliefs over the years about smoking, and we're going to get into those um, in our discussion today. But first, I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Nancy Merrill, who is an advanced nurse practitioner. Um, in the field of psychiatry, and she has been an advanced nurse practitioner since she was a mere child in 1977. She's currently the program director of alcohol and drug abuse services at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. In her 18 years at McLean, she has been part of various teams that developed NOCAG, Burnside, and the Brook. She has participated in several national research studies and has served for several years as the co-chair of NURS, the Advanced Practice Nursing Group. She has a private practice specializing in the treatment of people with addictive disorders and families of people with addiction disorders. Nancy, welcome, and thank you for coming in on your day off to spend an hour with us. Oh, Mary, thank you so much for having me. I I love this topic. I know it can be a, a depressing topic, but I like to give people a lot of facts and then always finish off with some positive thoughts on how people can reduce their smoking or quit their smoking altogether. So I'm just thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you know, I think this, the whole topic of smoking is, is um, really kind of defines our culture because I can remember when it was very elegant to smoke. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember the Virginia Slims uh, commercials where, you know, the woman wore a long black dress, had a sleek car, and... Um, and then there was a catchy phrase like "you you made it, baby" or something like that. Exactly. You know, you're 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 just a sophisticated woman. And when I was in nursing school, they used to give cigarettes as as like a token economy as a reward. I remember for, that. Um, yeah, for, for patients. <laughs> I I remember also Mary nurses smoking in the hospital, which yeah. was always mind blowing to me. And you know, I I think it's we've made some progress, but there are still more than 46 million smokers in the United States, 
which is an amazingly astounding number when you consider, you know, the other addictions that we put so much time and energy and money into treating. For example, there's roughly 17 million folks suffering from alcohol addiction, roughly 2 million folks suffering with opiate addiction, but one in five deaths in the United States are caused by people who smoke or from secondhand smoking, which I think is also a very under-discussed topic. And whenever I give this talk, I like to always start out by saying to people, this is a judgment-free zone when I present it, that just as you said, there are lots of ways to sort of catch people and get people smoking any more than three cigarettes in a row. And technically, the brain wants more nicotine. So it's very easy to get addicted. And so I always like to start off by saying to people, this is not in terms of judgment in any of the facts that we discuss or any of the the, the things that we talk about on how to quit, even if you haven't been successful in the past. It, it really is the number one addiction and, and really one of the more preventable ways to, to keep your health if you can stop smoking. And unlike some of the other addictions as well, Mary, unlike with most people with alcohol or opiates, at least in my professional practice, I don't advocate any kind of moderation because I think that's very difficult. But with smoking, there really is a lot of benefit, even if people can cut down. So I think there is a distinction there, at least when I talk with folks about this particular addiction. Well, you know, what we know about the effects of tobacco use and what's been accepted in society. There's such a lag. I when I first when I worked in my first um, hospital detox unit, there was uh, a smoking room and it had smoke eaters machines. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can remember the walls being so yellow from the smoke. I mean, they were the usual beige walls, but they'd all turned yellow mm-hmm. from the smoke. And you know. As a society, we, we now have, you know, restaurants that are smoke-free and, you know, we, we've made a lot of progress in that area. But I think in the addiction profession, we're way behind the times that, um, you know, there are a lot of programs that, and a lot of the belief is, is that if you, you can't quit everything all at once. Well, I think know, that tobacco, is... alcohol, and whatever else. Right. And I think that's an erroneous belief. And that's the other part that I like to talk with folks about. In fact, there had been a, a study at McLean and Scott Lucas's lab, and he put people into a functional MRI machine, specially designed by his lab, and it puts in the smell of cigarette smoke, the smell of alcohol, and pictures of alcohol. And they put in control subjects who did not have a history of, of addiction to any of those things. And at one twelfth of a second, flashed images, the brain remained static, no changes whatsoever, the control subject came out, wasn't aware of anything happening. And then they used subjects that had a history of alcohol, either abuse or dependence, and flashed the same pictures in the same parts of the brain that lit up in the, when you smoked as when, when you drank. So I think that was some really cold, hard evidence to start giving more credence and more support to what public health people have been saying for years, which is really, truly, it's easier on the brain if you give up everything at once. But I do hear that counter-argument all the time. Oh, this is my only vice. I'm not going to do well if I also have to give this up. And really, the truth is you're more successful, particularly if you're recovering from alcohol, if you give up smoking. And if you're smoking, you're more successful just in general if you can give it up or, as I said, to cut down. So I think that flies in the face of what the latest research is showing, that really it is, it is beneficial to give up everything at once. What is it about tobacco that makes it so deadly? Well, first of all, this was a surprise to me, and I learned this years ago, it is the fastest-acting drug on the planet. 
So from puff to brain is seven to nine seconds. And when I heard that, that was, that's even faster than IV morphine. So it's amazingly addictive. So it sits on the receptors very, very, very quickly. And it sits on the receptors for a fair amount of time. And the other part that I really like to talk to people about, because again, this was kind of um, news to me as well, and I learned this years ago as well, that when patients say, it really relaxes me, you know, when I, when I get really nervous and I start to get, you know, anxious. And really what that is and what most people don't recognize is that's nicotine withdrawal on the brain. And so cigarette smoking is actually generally not that relaxing, but it does, it does calm down those receptors in the brain. So that's what I try and tell people to start thinking about it a little differently because the brain believes what we tell it. So if we keep saying, well, this is what's going to relax me, we're going to keep keep that notion alive, when really if you can think this is just nicotine withdrawal on the brain, that starts to cut through some of that connection that this is really going to be helpful for me if I do this. If I keep smoking, it relaxes me and eventually I'll give it up. And really, truly, it's not, there are plenty of other things you could do to relax your brain. Isn't there a connection too between um, using tobacco and ADHD and you know, that's a, I, uh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, but that'd be worth finding out. Yeah. Um, the only reason I say that is I, my son has AD, ADD, and he's been smoking, unfortunately, since he's been in high school. But for him, he says, I focus better. Focus better. You know? That's interesting. I'll, have to, I'll do some research yeah. on that because that's, that's a great thing to find out about. And then how do you talk with people when, they, when they're making that association in their brain? Well, so far, I, I haven't been very successful. So, if you find out, I will. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to research that. that. I think that's a great, you know, I think that's a great thing to know. You know, the other thing that I think people overlook, and this, this always astounds me. And I don't even, I didn't even put everything on the presentation slide when I do this about all the other stuff that's in cigarette smoking, carbon monoxide, for example, which, as we know, is car exhaust, which can kill people just in and of itself. Acetone, which they use in nail polish remover, formaldehyde, which we all know what that's for, to preserve dead things. And this one really blew my mind, hydrogen cyanide, which is the poison that they used in the gas chamber. So when you consider all of that stuff going through every receptor in your brain and then sitting on your lungs, sometimes that, that fact people like to know because they can kind of put that through in their mind when they're also thinking, what, what would be some of the benefits of giving this up? that even if you're not really that worried about the tobacco, some, I mean, the nicotine, some of those things can also be pretty astounding. How long do we keep those gases in our system? How long does it take us to metabolize all the junk that's in tobacco? You know, it really depends on how much people are smoking. And um, so it can be anywhere from two hours to eight hours, depending on how much you're smoking, which is why most people feel like they, they need to keep smoking every couple hours, and that's about what most people can tolerate. I mean, I'm sure you've heard people say, well, I can't fly to California because I can't go that long without a cigarette. So it really depends on how much people are smoking. But, I, you know, I think uh, that the statistics are just so overwhelming about how serious it is, and I think that's the part, and I couldn't agree with you more, Mary, when you started off the show by saying it's really not something that we pay as much attention to as we should, I think, you know, my suggestion is every single encounter with every single client or patient that you have, it's worth having a conversation with them about this. Again, you can do it in a very non-judgmental way, just asking people, 
if they smoke, how much they smoke, and do they have any plans to quit, and if not, why not? And, you know, I had patients say to me once, you're the first person that's ever asked me, so I guess I just figured it wasn't as important as I once thought it was. And I think we speak with not speaking, that if we don't oh, ask yeah. patients, we don't act as if it's as important as it is. And, and I've had patients say to me, oh, for goodness sakes, part of the reason I'm cutting down is I'm just tired of you asking me every week. And that's great because I think it, it helps people just keep it on their radar rather than just accepting it and accepting it. And, you know, I'd read a statistic once that people try between four and nine times to quit before they actually quit. And that can be amazingly discouraging. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, I say the same thing with, you know, that Bill W. used to say, if you follow any of the AA tenants, that it could be the first time, it could be the hundredth time, it could be the thousandth time that you finally get it. And that's really the key thing is to keep encouraging people to try it again. You know, um, we have a campus in Florida that we recently built and we made it tobacco-free. Oh, fabulous. Well, it is. However, we we did this video that we were going to put on our website and we showed it at our family weekend and we got such pushback from families who said, you know, if this had been tobacco-free, my son never would have come here. Uh You can't do this. And there's, there's so much fear that families have around, well... You know, my, my son's in crisis. He needs something. You can't take everything away from him. Right. And again, I and think patients love to be educated. And when I've talked to people about the various studies and the, and the success rates of people who give up everything at once, that is something people can kind of hang their hat on. You know, and it's interesting you brought that up, Mary, because I did this presentation at the Boston Providers Association luncheon. And what people said is because everyone is not smoke-free, you take a real risk in going smoke-free for your agency. And I think as a group, we, we really agree that probably the best thing to do would be for everyone to have a plan to go smoke-free by a certain amount of time. And that way, you don't feel like, well, I'm going to hang my hat out there and the referrals are going to go somewhere other than to us. Because again, well, I think... In, go ahead, right. sorry. Well, the state of New York made it mandatory that all facilities would be smoke-free. And they didn't experience any decrease in um, demand for treatment. Wow. That's fabulous. And we'll be right back with Nancy after this commercial. If you have any questions or comments, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. 
host, Simran Singh, will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Today we're talking about smoking and tobacco and the effects it has on people who smoke and the reasons people smoke with our guest who is Nancy Merrill. She's an advanced nurse practitioner um, specialist at McLean Hospital where she is a program director for of alcohol and drug abuse services um, on the Belmont campus. And before we went to break, we were talking a little bit bit about um, the secondhand, you know, secondhand smoke. We were also talking a little bit more about um, what happens when people smoke. I, you know, we know that these gases sit on the receptors, but what happens to our other organs? What is the effect of long-term smoking on the body, Nancy? Well, again, I, I give these facts out, Mary, just because I think it gives people something to to think about and not to scare people, but unfortunately there aren't any great statistics about people who, who smoke. So, you know, I, I hope that this isn't a fear-based issue, but just I'd like to give some facts out just so, again, people can have a full decision when they decide, I'm going to try it, I'm going to try to quit, I'm going to try and cut down. Um, so, again, with the statistics, 21% of adult Americans smoke and 4,000 12 to 17-year-olds start smoking every single day. I had looked at the statistics in terms of which states had the best anti-smoking rates, and not surprisingly, California had the lowest smoking rates in the country. Um, they, they have virtually made it almost impossible to smoke anywhere there. You can't smoke within 200 feet of a building, and they absolutely enforce that. You can't smoke in any bars. You can't smoke in any restaurants. About five years ago, they made it illegal, seriously illegal, to smoke on any beaches. So they've really ramped up the notion that this is not a healthy thing. They don't want anybody exposed to secondhand smoke. Montana was second and Massachusetts was third. We had a great public health campaign, gosh, probably about 10 years ago, and our adolescent smoking rates decreased dramatically. Unfortunately, that public health money got pulled, and our adolescent rates are going up um, pretty quickly. So that's that's pretty concerning. In terms of, you know, I think most people understand the dangers, but, you know, cancer is the number one thing that people think of. But congestive heart failure, pulmonary disease, adverse pregnancy outcomes, uh, a shortened life expectancy. And people always say to me, well, my grandfather smoked and he lived to be 99. And usually what I say back is, well, he might have lived to be 110 if he never smoked. The vast majority, one-third of all people who smoke will die prematurely from cigarette smoking. And, and it's a $96 billion a year healthcare cost for us 
and it's a $97 billion disability for folks, obviously, who can't come into work because of smoking-related illnesses. So I think, you know, there's the cost to society, but then in terms of being in, um, near anyone with secondhand smoke, any children can are more prone to middle ear diseases. They're much more prone to respiratory infections. Smoking has been associated with sudden infant death, although I haven't been able to find as many studies about that as I have with women who drink and sudden infant death. So I don't know if there's a correlation there. Low birth weight for women who smoke when they're pregnant. With adults, there's an increase in lung cancer for even secondhand smoke, coronary heart disease. It certainly makes asthma considerably worse. And people feel like even if they smoke on the porch that they're doing a favor, it's better than smoking right in the house, but you really truly have to be about 200 feet away from a building for the smoke not to be penetrating back into the crevices in the house. This statistic, I think, is a very interesting one, and it's one that a lot of people can sort of get behind, and they worry about this, that the odds are... um, 50% more likely for your pet if you smoke that your pet is going to die of cancer. And so, again, I don't say it out of fear base, but some people feel like, well, you know, I'm not that worried about myself, but they may be really worried about a pet or pet that they love in their house. So I think that that's um, that's something to be thinking about as well. And, And again, these toxins sort of layer upon layer. So even if you're out on your porch or if you're in your house, it just builds up over time in a closed space that the toxins are actually dust particles. So when people exhale, there's actual, you know, tiny, tiny, but dust particles nonetheless that settle on clothing. And and we all know when we've walked into a home where someone smokes or I remember when my niece was little, the woman next door to my mother used to give her the paper and my niece would say, that paper stinks. And the woman was a smoker. Um, It gets on your clothes, it gets in your hair. Um, And in terms of global pollution, and again, I I think people don't think about this either. We've become so used to the acceptance around smoking. It's the number one most frequently noted trash is cigarettes and cigarette butts. And the cigarette filters are non-biodegradable. And as much as over 700,000 tons of litter worldwide from cigarette butts. So, you know, I think all of these things just, again, I, I think they're, they're true and they're scary, and I just don't think we spend enough time kind of trying to figure out how to help people stop. So that's, you know, those are just some more statistics that I like to, as I said, give people a chance to really figure out, you know, these are, these are the real cold, hard facts, and now how can I work this into some kind of a plan for myself to stop? I think because all of those health effects are invisible, people think, well, it's not, it's not going to happen to me. You know, that's I'm right. fine. I think that's and absolutely if could, true. If they could see how their arteries looked or how their lungs looked, um, they may have a different perspective on that. Right. And, and as you said, I, I went to college a million years ago, and, and well, you were kind, but I went to college about a million years ago for nursing school, and I will never forget, they showed us the lung of a smoker, and it was literally black. And the good news is the lungs are very porous, and they can clean up very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, probably, by, hopefully by the end of the show, Mary will also get into some of the, the benefits of stopping and how quickly there can be some benefits. But one of the things that I, that I also think is, is worth talking about, and, you know, partly f- when you mentioned the families of patients that you're 
dealing with um, this is a, a you know a, a very compelling and serious issue for folks that that also have a, a co-occurring mental illness, and I think this is a pretty huge public health problem, particularly for that population. Um, for example, tobacco dependent smokers with a mental illness represent only 7% of the population, but they smoke 34% of the cigarettes. So you can see that there's a huge increase um, in the amount of smoking that they do, in the duration of time that, from when they start smoking. They generally folks start smoking a little bit earlier. So I think it becomes just a huge public health problem. Um, you know, patients suffering from psychotic disorders the stats range anywhere from 50 to 70% of those folks smoke. And mood anxiety disorders, uh, depression, as many as 75% of that population smokes as well. And so I think, again, we spend a lot of time talking with patients about all kinds of things, but when I've asked clinicians, a lot of them feel like they don't know what to say after they ask if they're smoking. And so I think the the best thing that clinicians can do and family members is to have something ready to say to the person. You know, the, the 1-800-QUIT line is, is fabulous. Uh, you know, the public health uh, hotline is always open for, for folks to, to discuss. And public health is pretty clear that they feel like the best thing to do is to pick a quit date, number one. And they're very big proponents of nicotine replacement. I had a woman, and she was a nurse practitioner as well, and this, her entire caseload was, was working with folks who wanted to stop smoking. And she said this statement, she said, any nicotine replacement is better than smoking. And again, part of that is all the other chemicals that come into play with cigarette smoking. And, and I've had patients say, well, now I'm worried I'm going to get addicted to the gum or I'm going to be addicted to the patch. And she said it's still significantly healthier and safer to be addicted to that than to continue smoking the same amount. What do you think the benefit is for um, tobacco use for people with mental illness? What do you think they gain from it? Boy, that's a great question. Um, Again, I think there's the belief somehow that it's going to relax them. It's distracting. It can provide some social context for people. Um, other people are smoking in the program. Um, and also people, some folks have told me that in part they feel like, well, I'm not healthy anyway. And this kind of this sense of why even try, you know, I'm going to have this illness my whole life or, you know, I felt terrible my whole life, so what's the difference? And so kind I think of a that's fatalistic of approach. I'm sorry? Just, just kind of a fatalistic approach. That, exactly. Um, or belief. And it, it, I think it is. And, but, you know, there have been statistics that show as many as 80 to 90% of people in a, in a program designed yeah. to treat mental illness smoke. <laughs> so, again, I, and I think that really is incumbent upon all of us who are clinicians to really deal with this issue because really, truly, folks with mental illness are more likely to die from their smoking-related illnesses than any other illness that they're suffering from. I believe their lifespan is 25 years shorter. That's right. As a result of them. That's right. And, you know, they're already on, some folks are already on a tricky medication regime and that can lead to all kinds of metabolic issues and increased cholesterol with that. And, and I think, 
you know, what I try and talk to patients about is your quality of life can improve dramatically by stopping smoking. And so I think that's another piece to just talk with patients about the fact that, yes, you may have a, an illness that you're going to be, you know, needing to be vigilant about your whole life, but this is one that you can do very quickly and, and improve your health dramatically. Well, and the price of cigarettes is so expensive. I don't know how somebody on a fixed income, they, they have to make choices. They can't smoke and buy healthy vegetables and, and meat. Or their meds. You know, I've had patients say to me, I can't afford my medication, but yet they're smoking, you know, two packs a day. And, you know, when they raise the price of cigarettes, even by a dollar, it can save the country about $52 million a year because that many more people stop or they cut down. And so I know that people always feel like, oh, it's so unfair and they're raising the rates. But really, as I said, it's such a huge public health issue that, that it does for some people and encourage some people to stop smoking, not even just the forcing part, but really just to say, you know what, I, I could use this money some other way. And I always talk to folks about put that money away unless you're desperate to use it. And at the end of a year, you'll be able to get yourself something really terrific and you probably don't even realize how much you're smoking. And a lot of people don't know how much they're smoking until you really ask them. Um, and they're not as aware of it as... Well, maybe it's a pack, and I usually try and say to them, well, is it a pack or is it more than a pack? You know, kind of think about that and really try and, you know, denial is a big, you know, factor in all addictions. And so if you can help people move off the denial again in a you know, very non-judgmental way, sometimes that's enough for people to take a look at, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize I had really, now I'm up to two packs, and it really right. didn't well, take me that long. <laughs> It, it truly is habit forming, and we'll be right back after this commercial with more information on how to quit and why you should quit. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. In your family, what is most important to you? Is it health? Relationships? How about getting along better with your kids or your parents? 
Maybe it has to do with losing pounds or gaining financially. Whatever the problems you face in your family, you'll want to tune in to Family First with your host, author, and speaker, Randy Rolfe. Since 1985, Randy has become the foremost expert on matters concerning the family, and she can help you. Family First airs live every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We are talking today about smoking and tobacco use with our guest, Nancy Merrill, who's an advanced practice um, nurse practitioner, and she is the Director of Alcohol and Drug Abuse Services at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. Before we go on to talk about smoking, Nancy, could you just explain to our guests what an advanced practice uh, nurse does? Because there's so many acronyms. Sure, and we like to confuse the public, so we change it every five years. Yeah. Um, when I first came to school, we were called clinical nurse specialists, meaning you had a nursing bachelor of science degree, you went back to, call, to graduate school for a master's in psychiatric nursing specifically, and then you had to be board certified two years out. And then sometime into that, we were able to prescribe medication, uh, admit patients to the hospital, have a private practice, bill insurance companies. And so basically that's still the requirement that you complete graduate school work. Right now they're generally having folks do a nurse practitioner in addition to a psychiatric um, advanced practice nurse. But but basically it, it's all those things that I mentioned. You can prescribe medication for folks. You can have an individual private psychotherapy practice, admit patients to the hospital. So that's basically what what you can do with with an advanced practice degree. Um, Well, thank you for clarifying that. I think the other thing we should just briefly talk about, we've been talking about smoking, but chewing tobacco um, isn't really great for you either, is it? No, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I think that, and and patients have asked me about that. Well, how about if I do the chew? And um, we don't allow chew on any of the units at McLean. You know, I think it's not a good alternative. It's not a safe alternative. It's a real you're at real risk for developing tongue and throat cancer and mouth cancer in general. So it's not a safe alternative by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't recommend switching to that. And I I always recommend to patients if they do use chew that they also think of about a plan to stop using it. And you see a lot of the baseball players now, um, they've moved on to sunflower seeds, to peanuts. Uh, You know, that that word is is getting out. And there there was a baseball player, a very handsome guy, and he used to do chew, and he lost probably one-third of his tongue and most of the side of his lip, and he did a big camp, a big public health campaign about going to the schools and particularly going to the, the baseball teams and talking about that, how, you know, there's nothing, he used to say there's really nothing attractive about it, and I think that that's, you know, I, I, it's just not a safe alternative at all. So what are the benefits to smoking? Why should somebody stop? I mean, 
it's easy for us to talk about all the health concerns because we're both nurses and we don't smoke. But how do you talk to somebody who does smoke about what the benefits are? Well, first of all, I think there's some myths that people have about smoking, and that's generally where I start. I, I, I might ask someone, well, have you tried to stop in the past? What's gotten in the way? Um, and clinicians often think this as well. Oh, my gosh, it's just too much. It's just too much to stop. It's, it's my only pleasure. People say that to me a lot. I, Mary, it's exactly what you said earlier as well. The consequences to smoking are not immediate. Generally, people can smoke for years and years before they start to see the actual um, dangers of it and the, and the health risks of it, but that doesn't mean it's not causing havoc in the body and causing unhealthy responses in the body. Um, they also, they're concerned if they focus on doing this one thing, particularly if they're struggling with drugs or alcohol, that their stress will go up. People in general who aren't addicted to anything other than tobacco are also afraid that their stress will go up. So really the, the main thing is to just try and hear from people what's getting in the way of you personally trying to do it. Um, and, and so I think that I, I can tell you very quickly that there are lots of benefits um, right away when you stop. Um, within eight hours of your last cigarette, your carbon monoxide level, and again, that's what exhaust comes out of cars, it drops to normal. So eight hours is not a long time. So when you asked earlier how long do, you know, do these effects stick around, between six and eight hours, depending on how much you smoke. And also the oxygen level in your blood increases to normal. And people forget about this part, that the more nicotine you have run, rolling through your veins, the less oxygen you have available to you. So people may yawn a lot. They may feel drowsy a lot. Um, within 48 hours, your ability to smell is better and your ability to taste improves within 48 hours. Within 72 hours, your bronchial tubes relax. And you may even notice that your breathing feels a little easier, even within that short amount of time. In two to three weeks... Um, two weeks to maybe a couple months, your circulation improves. And this is the stat I love. Your lung functioning increases up to 30%. So that's a really quick bang for the buck in only a few months. In one to nine months, your coughing and sinus congestion, fatigue, and shortness of breath decrease. And I've had a lot of people say to me, I had no idea how short of breath I was until I stopped smoking. You know, I didn't realize that walking up a set of stairs, I was going to be so out of breath. And now I notice a big difference. Um, but the lungs are just cleaner um, in one to nine months. In five to ten years, the lung cancer death rate for the average smoker drops dramatically, almost to the rate of non-smokers. And precancerous cells are replaced by healthy cells. So there's a lot of really fast benefits, and then there are a lot of really good long-term benefits to stopping. Yeah, and I think you mentioned earlier, too, about all the money people save. Mm-hmm. and. The fact is, is that when you stop smoking, you don't stink. You can smell a smoker, you know, 10 feet away. And for a lot of people, that's a turnoff. So I know for me, if I'm talking to somebody and they're a smoker, I'm not as apt to want to, you know, ask them to go out for coffee or to do anything socially with them. Exactly. And they don't even realize it. You know, I I was treating one person and um, she kept saying, you know, my husband doesn't know I smoke. And I said to her, you know, the minute you walk in this office, I knew you smoked. I said, so either your husband doesn't smell it anymore, you know, but that's, you know, people don't even realize that they smell. Same thing, if I'm at the gym 
you can tell in aerobics when somebody starts sweating because the smoke starts coming out of their pores, and you can you can always tell when people are smoking. Yeah. You know, and I think okay. it is a turnoff, and and I think that again, you know, we've done a lot in terms of not making it as glamorous. There's not as many shows. There's not as many movies where people smoke, but it's still it is still part of our culture in a way that's that's pretty scary. And you know, when they give out these free cigarette packs, you know, um, which is illegal to give to an adolescent, but somehow they land in the hands of adolescents nonetheless. They know that if they give out six cigarettes for free, as I said, three cigarettes in a row, and your brain wants more nicotine. So it's so highly and quickly addictive that that's the part that I think we have to continually educate people that you will not escape the dangers of it. You know, there are just so many health concerns when you smoke that even if you feel like, well, my family smoked and I did this and I did that and nothing ever happened to me, that's really not what research bears out, that the vast majority of people get quite sick. You had mentioned earlier about um, treatment centers, uh, you know, fearing that if they become smoke-free that um, they will, you know, they won't be able to fill their beds and they'll have to lay people off. Do you think it's possible to do something within the industry to change that belief? Well, I loved what you said. Did you want? To, I don't know if we were on break or if, if we were on the air when you were talking about in New York, because I think that's a great thing for treatment centers to know about. Yeah. That that if the state mandated us to, mandated us to go smoke free, that would be the end, and we would do it. And you know, I think I do have people calling here. Can I smoke at Fernside? Can I smoke at the Brook? Can I, you know? And, and I just don't think we've come far enough along. And treatment centers are concerned about it. But, you know, I talked to one of the treatment providers and, um, you know, she said they went smoke-free and they had a little blip in the beginning and that was about it. And then their census went right back to where it was. And, you know, I just think the more programs that can go smoke-less, and and I think a lot of programs are trying to make it less communal, that only one person Mm -hmm. at a time can smoke. Um, You can't go out in any groups. they're, They're trying to take away the social aspects of it. You know, and I think all of those things will help because, again, if we're not putting a lot of energy into talking about it and talking about the dangers of it and, the, and even less so, you know, I, I read somewhere we have a lot more pleasure centers in the brain than pain centers. So I don't try and harp all the time on the negative. I try and harp all the time on the, the positive aspects of doing it. So, you know, rather than trying to take the social aspect of it, you know, have a, some kind of reward. If you don't smoke, you get to, you know, do this or you get to do that. And yeah. I think you know, that may be a helpful way to go versus, you know, I don't want to punish anybody who's smoking by any stretch of the imagination. I want to just keep it at the forefront and and have people kind of really be thinking about it, what's getting in the way of you doing it. And, you know, as I said, patients will say often, boy, it's, you know, you're bugging me that you're asking me, but it is making me think about it. Yeah. I was reading uh, an editorial in some nursing journal about um, a state board of nursing um, demanding that nurses not smoke. Interesting. And if they and if they were caught, they they were published. Their names were published in their state newsletter, 
And, you know, I, when you thought about, when you think about shaming, how much more shaming can that be? Exactly. I'm, I'm not you know? a fan. I don't think it works. I think it, it brings out the defiant part of all of us, even if we're not particularly defiant people. Um, and, and, and as I said, most of us don't have the negative brain power to, to help us not do scary things. We would never have flown after 9-11 if we always remembered that. You know, for me, every time I eat fettuccine Alfredo, I get sick, but then I think, oh, it's been two years, it's not going to happen, and yet it does. So I'm, I don't think that's a technique that works at all. I think it's much more helpful to have people feel like, just as you're saying, you know, you're going to be, you're going to smell better to be around. You may um, save a lot of money if you stop. You're certainly going to be healthier. And, and, you know, Mary, I think what you said is, is so telling. You could add 15 years to your life by stopping. You know, and that could be the difference of, you know, dancing at your daughter's wedding, getting married yourself, seeing your grandchildren. I mean, there are all kinds of really positive motivators for people versus, you know, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. I I like to just really try and help people figure out what would be the personal benefits to you. You know, for some people it's looks, you know, that that you're going to have wrinkles that that no one else is going to have other than smokers. And for some people, that's enough to do it. Or, you know, I really do want to be around and and see grandchildren if that's in the future. You know, I think it's helpful to try and have people get to what's getting in the way. And again, I think people try often. You know, I've met a fair amount of people who say I really, really like smoking, but the vast majority of people that I talk to just feel like they can't do it. I just can't stop. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. But when you talk with them about trying, to simply say, I want to stop, doesn't generally work for people. It works for some people, and great. Some people hear from the doctor, you better stop, and that's it. They stop. The vast majority of people need a plan. And as I said earlier, I'm I'm sorry? We'll be right back after this commercial to talk about plans and how people can stop and what's available to them. So we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Maybe there is something to a 3,000-year-old healing system. Tune in every week to Holistic Healing with Herbs and Chinese Medicine with hosts Michelle Collins and Andres Figara. Herbs, acupuncture, qigong, and food can work together to treat most chronic and acute health problems. Michelle and Andres will present discoveries intended to enhance your health. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ancient therapies can help you in modern times. No matter what you have tried... 
Healing is always possible. Learning about healing, what it is, and what it can do brings a much clearer understanding of the process. Listen for the Healing Power Hour with Suzanne Hill. Our program will help you understand your own body so that you can understand how you can reduce or eradicate any negative health issues that you might be dealing with. Healing is energy-based, and by learning how it works, you help yourself. Tune in to the Healing Power Hour, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Today we are talking about the effects of smoking and tobacco and addiction. And I think um, both Nancy and I can can vouch for her that we both feel very strongly that tobacco is something that um, people need to learn to live without in a healthy way. And that, um, you know, this is a very addictive substance and that it does not do anything positive for people who smoke and people who have addictions. Um, it's best, to, regardless of what people hear, it's best to just give everything up at once. And having said that, Nancy, what are some effective um, means of treating smoking cessation? How, what's, what can people do that want to quit? Well, there are, there are lots of things you can do. As I said, the, the public health um, Folks, and they, I think they're the, the experts in this field, are really big proponents of a couple of different things. One is picking a quit date, and two, nicotine replacement. Now, bef- before I kind of launch into that, I, I think, you know, some folks have found success with hypnosis as well, so I don't want to leave out anything that's holistic, anything that's non-med um, related, but, you know, I think... Because it, as I, we mentioned at the very beginning of the show, because nicotine sits so tightly on the brain receptors that it's important to replace it. You know, usually when you start to quit, the first seven days, you're really physiologically addicted. From that moment on, it's a more psychological addiction, but nonetheless painful. So oftentimes people feel amazingly irritable. They don't sleep great. And so... I've had folks come in and say to me, you know, I feel terrible, it's not worth it, and really try and encourage folks to get nicotine replacement because it does help with some of the urges. Some of the meds help with urges and cravings, and some of them are pure sort of replacement for the nicotine. There's about a milligram of of, um, nicotine in each cigarette, so obviously um, that's a lot, depending on how much you smoke, of how much nicotine is, is sitting on your receptor. So the first thing really to do is to talk with patients about are they willing to take something, you know, and, and what are they what are they willing to take? You know, I've heard stats as high as that nicotine replacement increases the rate of success in quitting anywhere between fifty to seventy percent of the time. And so I think that's a good statistic to be able to share with folks that, you know, you may not want to take medication. You don't have to take it forever in a day, um, but it really will increase your chances of quitting 
uh, tremendously. You know, the newest medication to come out was, was Chantix, and it really does have the best data. For quitting, it works in the brain to block the pleasurable effects, so you have less of a desire to smoke. Um, the, the problem is it ended up having a, what's called a black box warning in the world, the psych, you know, the prescribing world, and that it, it can increase the chances of suicidal thoughts. So if you have a history of depression already or a history of mental illness, it's probably not the best chance, uh, excuse me, best choice. The, the good news is, if that ends up happening and you're on it, really the minute you stop it and there's no sort of reverberation for stopping it, those thoughts will disappear. So, and, and Chantix wanted to be kind of clear with their data and that it's not so much that they've had completed suicides, they've just had more people with suicidal ideation, which of course would be terrifying to people. So, but it's a great thing to use if, if you don't happen to have a history of depression. Um, then there's the patch, which I think is, is it, it comes in 21, 14, and 7 milligrams. So again, you can kind of judge, you know, how much you're smoking with the replacement. Um, we don't recommend it for anyone that's pregnant. Um, you want to ask if people have a history of asthma. And I recommend to people that they take it off at night. Um, it has a tendency to increase nightmares. And so pay, that obviously would be a very unpleasant thing. And oftentimes patients aren't sleeping or folks that are trying to quit aren't sleeping as well uh, that they would if they, weren't, if they were still smoking. So, but I think that's the patch and um, adding Zyban, which is people may hear it also as uh, Wellbutrin. And it's an antidepressant medication, but if you give it in a dose that's not quite the same dose as what you would give if someone were depressed, for example, 150 milligrams, once a day, at the most twice a day, um, that has a big impact on reducing the cravings and it really helps with the withdrawal. So, you know, I, I've heard that the combination of the patch and Wellbutrin, you can't have a history of any seizures, you can't have an eating disorder, um, and all this would be stuff obviously you'd go over with your practitioner before you started, but that also has a really high success rate using that in combination with replacing the nicotine in general. And then, of course, there's um, the gum, there's the lozenges, there's a nasal spray. Most people don't like the spray too much. They feel like it leaves an aftertaste. And I've had a lot of people say to me, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, now I'm addicted to the gum. And again, you know, you want to sort of weigh the risk benefits. And then generally what I say to people, you know, come down off the cigarette smoking, be cigarette free for a certain amount of time, and then you can have a plan for decreasing the nicotine replacement that you're using. Well, I think, um, what about like peer support groups? And- Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think again, when you, when you call the quit line, the 1-800, uh, I think it's, I should have it in front of me and I'm embarrassed I don't try to quit or, um, they offer support and they offer groups. There's a lot, there's groups in almost everyone's town, public health, the main public health number in your town could tell you any groups that are working at that time. And I think having a support group is a great idea. You know, it's helpful to have other people going through it who can laugh about how irritable they are or sympathize about how hard it is to do it. So I think having a group is a great idea. And again, I think for the clinicians who might be listening, you know, just make sure you're talking to your patients, you know, talk with them about how much they're smoking, what's getting in the way, how motivated they are. You know, the same 
stages of change that we would use for anyone that has an addictive disorder that we're working with. You know, and I think, you know, as you know, some incentives for staff who, who smoke to help them also become part of this whole movement so that they can talk with, you know, folks about how, how to do it as well. And I think the hotlines are great because if you're having a major urge, you can call someone. And I think the groups are great for that as well because it's someone else to be accountable to. And we've learned a lot over the years with addiction with pilots and physicians. They have a very tightly monitored uh, program generally and reporting into someone can be a very good um, motivator for people to continue to stay clean. Yeah. Where can people find out more? I mean, is it the American Lung Association or the American Lung Public Association? Health Department or? Well, I'm the Public Health Line, Try to Stop, Quit Line. Uh, sort of, really, basically, you can Google any Try and Stop, uh, and you'll come up with different groups, different public health numbers. You know, even if you just Google public health and smoking cessation, tons of things will pop up that, that can be easy suggestions that you can do right online. You can, as I said, they can help you find a group in your area. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of treatments for it. And again, you know, I think it's just even cutting down, even if your goal is to cut down in the first couple of weeks, that's still a great goal. Well, and I think it's really important what you said earlier is that it takes more than one quit experience for people to be successful and and everybody should should understand that this is a process it's not an event and not to become frustrated if somebody picks up again because each time you quit you you gain something and i really want to thank you for spending um this holiday afternoon with us nancy and for sharing with everybody about the importance of um uh, getting treatment for tobacco. Use. Mary, it's so great to talk with someone else who really understands this, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. And thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Have a great week, everyone. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.